And one of the first things that I that I've learned from that film is that American sculptors did not really sculpt per se. They did not actually work on the stone. Hi, I'm Dina, teacher and reluctant puppeteer turned host of La Bifana's Table, a podcast dedicated to the art of sacred hospitality, where each week listeners are invited to feast on real-life stories of hope and healing, as well as soul-nourishing conversations with folks from all walks of life who are utilizing their gifts in both small ways and large to make the world a more beautiful place. So pull up a seat, tell some friends, and become a part of a legendary story. Welcome to La Bethana's Table. I'm your host, Dina Gregory, and today we are very blessed to have Eduardo Montes Bradley with us. He is an award-winning filmmaker known for his biographical portraits of artists, social activists, and scientists. Some recent works include Daniel Chester, French-American sculptor, and Black Fiddlers. Today's episode, we're going to focus our talk about his most recent project, The Italian Factor, which is a documentary that explores the life and works of Italian-American sculptors and their impact on public art and the formation of the American identity. So welcome to La Bifana's Table, Eduardo. I'm very happy Thank to have you, you here. Thank you for Thank you very much. Yeah. So I just want to dive in. And first of all, I was very interested in all of your works, but right now you're focusing on the Italian factor. Can you just kind of tell me how you got interested in that story? Yeah, it all started with the film I did last year, which premiered earlier this year about Daniel Chester French. The film is called Daniel Chester French, American Sculpture. And one of the first things that, I, that I've learned from that film is that American sculptors did not really sculpt, per se. They did not actually work on the stone. So they modeled the work. They designed and then modeled the clay or the plaster. Okay. But when it came time to cast on bronze, they would go to foundry. And when it came time to translate that model into stone, they would call, call on, call upon, um, stone carvers. Yeah. And there is different levels of the stone carvers. There is uh, executors, people that just stone carve in the stone and execute the works of others. And then there is actual sculptures who uh, on the spare time, or in order to make enough money to do their own work, they carve in stone the works of other sculptors. And that was the case of the Pichirili brothers, which I've learned of. Pichirili brothers, better known for living in the Bronx and working in the Bronx for about 60 years, did all but two of Daniel Justin French's works, and that includes the memorial. Mm. So... Uh, that triggered a lot of questions, as you can very well imagine. And that's how I became aware of who the PGDs were. And that set me on a path of discovery. And it set off the question, but what would you say is like the, the first thing? Like it's, it's the uncovering and unveiling of here was this kind of first layer of this. And now I'm reali realizing more who's behind the many parts of it. You know, what is it that really like drew you in, you think? Well, the fact that perception has a, just like perception is an indicator of 
many other many things when you stand in front of a work of art. Perception also has to do with the realization that the work has been done by someone else and who gets credited for it. And is it a collective effort or is not? And in the case of the Pichirilis, it's an entire dynamic of elements that come into place. First of all, for example, the, the, the leader of the six brothers, the Piccirilli brothers, was in many ways Attilio Piccirilli, one of the brothers, right? Okay. And he always wanted to make sure that you refer to the Piccirilli brothers as Piccirilli brothers, the we, not the I. <laughs> and that covers something up. But and the, what was covering up is the fact that the distribution of the work within the family structure is very intricate and it's and it's very interesting. Mm. It's very familiar. Works as an organic family that starts with the father, right? Right. And the father was uh, Giuseppe Piccinini, also a sculptor, graduated from the Academy of Fine Arts in Rome. And let me make a parenthesis here. Yeah. In New York, they are perceived as the Piccinini brothers, stone carvers. Okay. Well, they're not stone carvers. They're master sculptures with roots that can be traced all the way back to the early Renaissance. But why do we call them stone carvers? It's because it's another way to sugarcoat the fact that American sculptors, like in this case, uh, Diane Chester French, did not sculpt their own work. So mm. they had to resort to carvers, but it's not, they're not really going to, or after the help of stone carvers, they're going after the help of very, very well-trained sculptors that knew more than they did about mm. sculpting stone. In fact, they had superior education, like the fine, uh, like the School of Fine Arts in Carrara, or the School of Fine Arts in Florence, or the School of Fine Arts in in, in Rome, which mm-hmm. is something that American sculptors didn't have basically because we did not have those such schools here. At the mm-hmm. So one thing leads to the other, and I ended up rewinding the story all the way to the beginning, which mm. to me in America starts with the building of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. between 1796. Six, so thereabouts, and eighteen away. Mm-hmm. And for that purpose, the first Italian sculptors were called because we didn't have anybody in America at the time to design, create, and execute the capitals, capitals for the columns. Right. So we actually brought sculptors from Italy, and that was the beginning of that relationship between the Italian Renaissance and the American Renaissance. But the American Renaissance is definitely a consequence of this relationship. And so can you uh, illuminate just a little bit of the context of what is kind of, what is going on in America at the time that the Peachy Daly family is is doing like the main portion of their work? Well, the, the Peachy Daly's arrived in the spring of 1888, hmm. in April. Now, in May of 1888, there is a number of, uh, of advertisements that come out on the newspapers warning employers not to hire Italians in public works in New York City. So they were not like welcome with open arms, obviously. Uh, they first went to work with 
at a sculpture studio in mid-Manhattan on the east side by the East River. It doesn't exist anymore, which was the Adler's studio. There was a Jewish man who produced sculptures for cemeteries, mortuary, you know, mm-hmm. monuments, memorials, that sort of thing. And as soon as he was, they were able, the Pichirilis, open their own studio on 39 and 6. It doesn't exist either, and there is no many records. We found very little records of that, the existence of that studio. And that's where they were discovered by Daniel Chester French and other sculptures, which at the time hmm. were forced to travel to Italy every year or every time they had a big uh, commission uh, to bring their plaster or clay model mm-hmm. into the studio of the Italians called Laboratori, which is, you know, where they the sculptures get made. And they will have to take this small size of sculpture made on yeah. clay into Florence, Carrara, you know, whatever it is that they went at the time. Uh, there were studios all over Italy, but mostly, in, you know, Florence, Carrara, and Rome. And their work was, was executed there. They helped to choose the marble. And, uh, and when it was finished, they had to put it on a ship and bring it back to the United States. Now, this increases the value of the commission. It makes it more expensive. Just think of the value of the insurance. You need to insure right. <laughs> that alone. Because you can, you can insure a piece of marble, but if you need to insure a work of art that took six months to make and has that added value, it right. costs a lot more. And there is very little written about this. Um, so I had to make my own calculations of how much it cost and you know what? Not. So the fact that that is just the French figure out that these Italians were living in New York is what made it possible for the explosion of mm. public artwork in New York mm. between 1890 and 1930s. Okay. Because now somebody like, let's say, French, to use always the same familiar name and who ended up as one of the closest friends to the Pichididis, what happened is he was able to take two, three, four commissions at the same time, public and private. Mm-hmm. He would bring them into the studio and Pichidili would assign it to different brothers and everybody was working, all of his brothers and his father were working on this, multiple commissions. Mm. And then just a French could work on what he was best at, which is as an impresario of himself. Right. You mentioned something earlier about the brothers, and I'm interested in that dynamic a little. You, you know, you, you were saying that they were kind of always the we and not the I. And just if that's an interesting little thing that I would like to know, what were you kind of pointing at there? What were you finding out in terms of the relational dynamics? And it's very interesting to me because you said, right, the, you know, in terms of the perception, okay, what is the collective effort versus the individual effort? And then you said the brothers were this we, but where was the I? Where was the I asserting itself? It's difficult to say, but let's put it this way. What I can definitely conclude after this, all this preliminary research and where we're heading is that after the experience of the Capitol building, Thomas Jefferson hired a great number of sculptors from Italy and brought them to Virginia to work on the University of Virginia Rotunda okay. on all the buildings and in the, at Monticello at his uh, home. But one day they, they basically stood up and they say, we don't want to work anymore for you. 
what's going on? Uh-huh. Well, at first, we miss our families. Yeah. Second one, your food stinks. <laughs> it could have kept them longer if you got the good food right. <laughs> yeah. The food is bad, and I miss my wife. I'm like, exactly. And when I work them, I'm going, I'm going back to Naples. You know, that's so once you read those, those letters and that correspondence, mm. you understand that when in 1888, the massive immigration of Italians into New York takes place, they come with their families and they burn the sheep. So there's nothing else to go back to. Mm. And their families are with them. So they're here to stay. So that is the difference between the temporary migration okay. and the exodus. The mm-hmm. word exodus means to exit from somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in fact is the is the is the second the second book of the old testament, you know. Right. Like the Genesis not the Exodus, you know. Yeah. As so the Exodus is the way that we should look at the great migration. Okay. Of Italians into the United States. And I call it the Great Migration intentionally because 40 years later, we have the Great Migration of, of African Americans from the South to the North, right? Right. And that is the one that we know as the Great Migration. But we should be more careful when we label episodes of our recent history because, because there's more than one Great Migration. And the experience is very similar in a way because my previous work, which had to do a lot with the African-American migration from the South to the North. Yes. I did several films on the, on the African-American diaspora experience yes. in America. Yes. That was the, uh, the other Madison. Okay. Uh, which the black descendants of President James Madison, the black fiddler, Julian Bond, several films that always touched on this experience. Mm. Even the one on Rita Dove, American poet. Because she descends from, from these immigrants in Detroit and Chicago who came from the South. And it's interesting because these immigrants were fleeing, for example, lynching. Mm-hmm. And the Italians met lynching in America. Yeah. In fact, yeah. one of the most uh, awful episodes of lynching in the South uh, took place when 11 Italians were lynched in the same day. There seems to be like a place where there's a connection, but there's many people that miss that connection of, of not very, I wouldn't say similar. I mean, there's a very large difference, but there's, there's a similar pain that is like the thread yes. that goes with yeah. there. Um, what happens when you, it's what happens when you open the lens, the zoom, mm-hmm. like a telescopic look at history. Yes. And then you see that, you know, history tends to repeat itself. And, and uh, it was interesting to see Italian exodus, a lot of what I've seen before in the, in the, in the great migration of African Americans. Mm-hmm. That's interesting to, right? Because when you're zooming in on one experience, that becomes the one experience. And I, I appreciate the way that you are zooming out and seeing these, these threads, right? These threads of migration, you know, because I mean, ultimately we're all on <laughs> some migration yeah. journey. Whether we realize it or not, whether we, we stay in one place our entire lives or move everywhere, it's, it's one big migration journey. Um, my question was, you know, you said you're looking at the impact on the formation of the American identity. And how would you say these works in particular have been a part of the formation of, of the American identity? And that's a, and what does that mean for the, is that the American identity, the Italian American identity? And 
storyteller and seeing the moment, like this precise moment that we're in, what is, <laughs> you know, what is it? Yeah, I don't think you can conceive New York City without the without Italian experience. Right. Even if you're not necessarily looking upwards towards the statues and the monuments and the buildings, but just the names of the stores and the names of the people and, you know, the, the city is, is, is a great Italian city. You know, it's a, it's a capital of the American Renaissance, just like Florence is the capital of the Italian Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And how, how does it contribute to the creation of, a, of, of the identity? They're, they're, you can't take them apart. Mm-hmm. There is something that I think that is very interesting that I found on the, on, on this process. Yeah. And it is that, Italians didn't think of themselves as Italians when they came in the early 1880s. They thought as Calabrese, Genovese, Napolitani, Veronese, Siciliani, Calabrese, Puntino, the regions, and they, yeah. they don't share the same language and they don't share, the, I mean, they share a common root, but you know, right. dialects are dialects and they're not necessarily very close to each other. And they don't necessarily share also the same culinary practices and literary taste and music taste. And they're different. They have not been a singular geographical entity since the fall of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. So you're talking one in a thousand years. And they have just become one under the the Sorgimento, you know, under the the spell of Giuseppe Garibaldi, with whom Giuseppe Piccirilli, Piccirilli's father, the patriarch, fought along because he was a member of the Red Church. So when they came here, they had all these differences amongst them. Hmm. And those differences were very clear. Okay. Sometimes even racist, if you want to. Yeah. Americans did not understand those differences. Mm. So they called them Italians. Mm-hmm. So it was easier to call them Italians than to call them uh, Neapolitan or, or, you know, or Genovese or Siciliani. They knew who each other, who everyone else was in the community. But for Americans, it was easier to call them Italians and to uh, circumscribe their district to what we know today as Little Italy. But Italy is a country... If you think not all the territories in the, in the Italian peninsula signed the union n- until the end of World War I. So there were, there were identities and, and the Picinius were Toscano mm-hmm. and Romans. Mm-hmm. In, you know, those two, two axles in a way, right? But what makes the identity, the American identity, the American identity is still being transformation today. Yes. I think that what, and very much so. But what they greatly contributed is to make New York and New Jersey, maybe, and in many ways, Philadelphia and perhaps Chicago, the great cities that they helped to transform. They brought their names, their food, their music, mm. their, their social structure. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yes, we're a consequence of all that in great measure. Obviously, you are a storyteller of other people's stories. I'm interested in you. Um, what are some of the common threads or, or themes that attract you? Would you say that there is a thread that kind of 
brings together in some way uh, the, di- the the different films that you have. Um, I'm a bouncy monkey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like to think of myself as, as those, those images that you see of, of monkeys in the jungle going from one tree to the next. Uh-huh. Uh, it, but it's always the expectation of learning something new about art, what works in terms of um, what is a determinant in social transformations. I'm interested in literature. The first 20 films I made were exclusively about writers, mm-hmm. Latin American writers. And the reason is because I thought that they had already processed a lot of the information that, that I wanted to absorb. And I go like, well, if I talk to them, um, they might be able to transfer some of that. Mm-hmm. When, when I was a child, I had serious difficulty reading, concentrating to read the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And my father would insist, you know, have you read the newspaper? Just, you know, yes, now. Yes, I think I did. I don't know if I did. Yeah. And that I might have, must have been dyslexic or just lazy. I don't know. And uh, so I will always find someone to read the newspaper to me. Mm-hmm. So an old lady in the neighborhood. Yeah. The superintendent, friends. Uh-huh. And they will read it. And I noticed when they were reading, they were introducing changes mm-hmm. on the news. In the nuance of their voice and, or they will say, wow, I can't believe that. You know, they will introduce their feelings and I will just concentrate on their voice. And mm. I thought that is the best way to learn, to have someone else tell the story. Right. Because now the story, be- in, in fact, when you're reading the newspaper, someone is telling you the stories, a journalist somewhere. Right. In the right. But you don't know the guy. But then now this person is telling you the story and you're getting a little essence of them in their telling, in their telling of that. Yeah. And then my father will say, so what was, you know, what was the headline? And I will give him the headline from the point of view of the old lady in the bench of the park. And, uh, Mm -hmm. um, I noticed that, you know, storytelling was everything to me from a very, very, very early age. Yeah. It's it's interesting to have some of those things of which, you know, when we're younger, like you couldn't read the newspaper and, and these little these little tricks that we do that end up kind of eliminating what our own interests no, are. I know I know that this connect for me was that I will start reading a page, for example, right? And then the little page says, Well, so he walked on the uh apple orchard and uh, orchard and and one of the apples was rotten and he kept on walking. I don't then the story goes on, right? But my mind will stop at the rotten apple. And I will think to myself, what would happen? What happened? Whatever happened to that rotten apple? It probably fell. And if it fell, was it my idea or was it eaten or not eaten my idea? Maybe ended up on a case with other apples and then the other apples got rotten because it's always the rotten apple that rottens out the apple. But by now, I was, by now, I was seven pages forward and I did not pay attention to anything that happened after the apple because another book was happening in my mind. Wow. Wow. So you read to me, I can't do that. Wow. That's, I think that's, that's the best realization. But, oh, I can't, I don't remember what I was doing because I was making up another story in my mind from, from I don't think I found book. You're like, actually, I think this would be a better story. Sorry to interrupt you, author. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to go this way with it. <laughs> I have no idea where you went, but I know where I was. And I was uh-huh. where you were, you know. Exactly. Oh, that's incredible. My other 
question, given the breadth of your, your work, and um, I'm definitely at least where I am in an interest of, is it in this question of, of identity and formation? You know, so for you, how have you been formed by your works? I feel there's always that process of creating something. You're, you've created this film and there's that kind of mutual transformation in some way. And so I'm curious to, as you look at, you know, your past films and or your most recent ones, what are the ways that they, they have changed you or have kind of fulfilled like a certain hung, hunger that you had? Well, uh, let me see. I think I have improved over the years, became more tolerant just by understanding and coming in contact with all the people's fears mm-hmm. and perceptions. I come from a very uh, intolerant society, you know, yes. very manichaeist, like a white and good and evil and communist and capitalist and, you know, all that stuff. You know? And one of the things I've learned is that everyone is going through personal ordeals. I think mm. this sounds like a commonplace, but I have met lots of people, uh, dead and alive. Mm-hmm. Because I can always say that if I make a film about a person that is no longer living, you still meet that person. Mm. Could you, could you expand on that a little? Yeah. There was, a, for example, a film I did on, um, on a wood engraver called, uh, Julius John Lankes, J.J. Lankes. He's been dead for many years, almost probably as long as I've been alive. And um, I feel like I got to hear his voice. I feel like even above and beyond the impressions that his descendants might have, I started going to bed and, and I have the absurd feeling that the subjects are talking to me, you know? Yeah. Um, and they do, they do talk to you because they took to you through through the writings, the interviews that they gave before is the text and the metadata. Yeah. It's just like, it's just like the metadata embedded on the, on the, on the photographs, you know? It's right. You look, at a, look at a photo and you go, like, oh, that's a beautiful scene. This must be Tuscany. Then you look at the metadata and you realize that it's not Tuscan. It's probably, you know, the Appalachian Trail. So, um, yes, I learned to read between the lines. And I think I became a better person. And I always question what was my contribution to the community, to the society. Yeah. And I always felt pressured by that uh, because, you know, my... One of my grand uncles used to say, you know, you, you are as good as what you have left behind mm. others to learn from. And they're like, oh my God, what have I done? I haven't done anything in my entire life. And then I thought, like, well, no, you know, there's about 50 films of mine that are in public life. But looking at them and hopefully their lives will be better because of it. And, you know, I would I, say this is an incredible contribution. Um, I th- I don't know. I'm getting better now. My son, William, who started working with me recently, and I'm trying to transfer what I know to him as as a tool. Uh, Usually when I get involved in a project and it's two or three o'clock in the morning and I'm working, Mm -hmm. he comes downstairs and he goes like, oh, you're about to film yourself again, aren't you? (laughs) 
Building yourself, you know, like, like a compulsive thing, you know, like, uh, uh-huh. not being able to hold it, you know, and I'm like, no, this is a great, this is a great subject. I think we should take on this. And is, are you, is your son interested in similar topics or where would you say is? No, no, he's generationally different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I, I perfectly understand. I would be worried if he was worried about the same, um, Issues I am because he's been shaped by other phenomena completely different. I was, I was shaped by, I always say, you know, my friends tend to say, you know, we were shaped by the sixties and the seventies. And I would go behind that. I think we were shaped by World War II. We were shaped by, by, by the stuff that happened on the one or two generations before us. I think that there is this, this idea of the, of the collective and, and, I would say genetic memory because I don't know, but the collective memory, you know, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a th- three generation experience. No? Yeah. I think that his experience is different because also the composition where he comes from is different. His mother and I is a unique bond, just like my parents were a unique mm-hmm. bond, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and inherited from those two. And he's inherited from all the two. He loves, and besides, it's also cultural. Right. Ah, of sorts. These guys are learning differently. And, um, no, I don't expect him to try to understand the world. I'm trying to understand the world I came, I'm living in and I came from. Mm-hmm. He's going to have to understand the world he came from, which is different. It's another world. Yeah. I just want to give him the tools. Right. He still needs to be, he still needs to place the microphone in the right position. He still needs to aim the camera the right way. Mm. He still needs to concentrate on what's important and what is not. But the subjects are his, I think. That's like a kind of just really beautiful metaphor for for just the passing of knowledge and how we do it. Because it's interesting, you know, especially as you're as you're contemplating like what is the contribution? You know, what is our contribution in this in this in this world? And you know what. I think every generation has to figure out the sub, they pick their own subject matter. But I I do think it's an interesting kind of question in in general of, you know, you're saying that in terms of um, technique, you know, but where, what do we, what do we look at? What do we perceive in the world? How do we, how do we take that in? You know, there's a lot Mm. of, you know, we have different cultural contexts that we've all kind of grown up in and we're trying to understand our place in that. Which, which, which all of this brings us back to the Pichinus. I always wonder whether yeah. the Pichinus are the happy, content being called Italian. Did they, did they just want to be Tuscans? Or, or, or there is this, there was this another, there was another, another fascinating character called Gaetano Trentinove. Okay. And Gaetano Trentinove was an, uh, Neapolitan, I think it was Neapolitan, and he was a prominent fascist. He loved Mussolini, and he was very prominent in Wisconsin, of all places. And he had a studio in Wisconsin, I think Madison, yes, in Madison. Yeah. And another one in, in, in Florence. And they both were beautiful. And his work was really interesting. And I don't think he wanted to be thrown in the same basket with the Piccinilis. 
And, and it's understandable that Pichilinis were more socialist and, you know, and red shirts. And, and then there was another one called the Roda uh-huh. of Little Italy. And then there was another one called Novelli. Uh-huh. Novelli was a very sensitive soul. Uh-huh. He was so depressed when America went to war with Italy that he couldn't choose between his two countries, and he hanged himself. Oh, my God. So, you see, this is like, a, this is like, a, like, a, like an opera. Of course. You can hear the music. The guy yeah. hanged himself because he couldn't bear his new country to which he pledged allegiance uh, going to war against his neighbors. So, so life is an extraordinary experience. The human experience is the jungle where I'd like to mm. out of a tree. Mm. That's gorgeous. <laughs> that is because this that it's <laughs> that's beautiful. I've never heard it said that way, and I love that. So you know, before we before we wrap up, I just wanted to kind of ask you: Can where can listeners find more of your work? What is what's where are you in your process with making the Italian Factor? I have a website uh, which you can access to uh, heritagefilmproject.com or montesbradley.com. Both would lead to the same uh, site. And the first thing you see is the Italian Factor, which is uh, right now supported by the Columbus uh, Citizens Foundation. It's very important. They are they were instrumental in getting this thing done. And then there's another film that I'm working on called The Art of Joy Brown, which depends on individual donations. Um, we have raised most of the funds already, and that film is being shot in Connecticut and in Japan. Can you tell mm-hmm. a little bit more about that film? Yes, this film starts with a a potter maker. Yeah. But potter makers are not considered sculptors, but there are sculptors that are doing sculptural figures, right? Yeah. So I was very interested in the fact that she worked with earth instead of stone. And she worked on the tradition, on the Anagama tradition, which is a millionaire tradition in Japan. And um, she was born in Japan and grew up in Japan and came to the United States for the first time at age 24. But it's completely transculturalized because she speaks English. She doesn't speak Japanese. Mm. And she mm-hmm. descends from three generations, two generations. She's the third generation of missionaries, American missionaries in Japan and China before that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's an experience that takes you from China to Korea, from Korea to Japan, from Japan to Connecticut. And, and I just love the work that she does and the way that she approaches life. I mean, but we talked in about learning from the death and from, from those who, who are alive and just, I learned as much from, I'm learning as much from Pichirili as I am learning from Joy and her group of friends and supporters and her friends and supporters here and in Japan. And it's just another road to explore. It's just another path. And I'm, I'm very grateful that being as confused as I was as a young man, 
that I was able to find all these crossing paths mm. that will lead me to places where I can learn so much. Invite your listeners to uh, to look up the. Um, there is a YouTube page also where there are, yeah. uh, I don't know, like about 600 shorts where you can, you know, look at different works and how they evolved. And and on the website, there is also a, a blog where I normally uh, post some of the experiences. Well, Eduardo, thank you so much for joining me here today at Lab of Fana's Table. I really, really enjoyed our conversation so much. Thank you very much. The pleasure pleasure was really all mine. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. All right. Thank you. Ciao. Thanks so much for pulling up a seat to La Bufana's table. To get episodes sent direct to your inbox, as well as other perks such as access to our monthly community and connection hours, be sure to subscribe to my substack, dinagregory.substack.com. Ciao.